chapter 4 is where we are today. <clears throat> we started Mark 4 last week and uh, got about halfway through it. And this is where Jesus begins teaching the crowd using parables. Not that this is the only time, but this is where in a very concentrated teaching, everything he teaches is through parables. And uh, even the disciples ask, why are you teaching through parables now? In other words, this huge crowd shows up, and, and instead of just teaching plainly, he, he's using parables. And we talked about the importance of what a parable does, is that it causes the hearer to have to work just a little bit to find the truth. It's not spoon-feeding truth to them. It's not making it easy necessarily. And basically, everybody finds what, they're showed up, what they showed up to receive. So those that are there to be critical... Oh, they've got, they can just be critical and they won't hear a thing. Others that are kind of on the fence, they're going to get a little bit of truth. And those that really desire truth, they're going to get some deep things. And uh, so Jesus is teaching in these parables and, uh, and with a lot of parables, probably all of them, but, but some of them are a little bit, I think, more obvious. It's like they're in layers. So the first time you read it, it's kind of, you get the surface truth, and it's still true. And you're like, okay, I got that, and you kind of move on. But when you understand more of what Jesus is saying, or the context that it was in, or the picture that he's drawing, and, and dig just a little bit deeper, there is this great depth. So we're looking at just a few little parables, small ones, easy just to read and go right on by, but there's a, a huge depth to these. And and even within them, there's this warning that's, that it's easy to miss. Uh, and what seems like a simple parable actually can hold not only a deep truth, but in some ways a darker truth than, than what we kind of want to see at first. Uh, Jesus is also going to start using uh, the term the kingdom of God. And this is the same as when he, in the other uh, uh, gospels when he uses uh, the kingdom of heaven. And the only reason I mention that is it can be a little bit confusing because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven can refer to a few different things. First of all, it can refer to the actual place of heaven where God resides. It can also refer to the king of heaven. It can also refer to the people of the kingdom, meaning the church. And it can also be referring to the word of God itself, the truth of the kingdom, right? And so it becomes pretty obvious when you understand that those are really only the four things that it can be referring to, that when you read through a parable that speaks of the kingdom of God, you can look at it and go, well, does this really fit concerning the place of heaven? No, not really. And, and just simply by eliminating the ones that don't fit, you find the one that it's talking about. And it's important because it gives the meaning of what we need to hear. It's giving the truth that Jesus is speaking concerning the kingdom of heaven. Um, so let's pray, and we're going to start at verse 21 in chapter 4. Lord Jesus, again, we just give you ourselves. We just have met here today to meet you. We want to hear from you. We want to be changed by you. And Holy Spirit, we give you full reign to have your way in this place and in our hearts individually. Give us ears to hear your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse... 21 of chapter 4. It says, Also, he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? 
Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor anything been kept secret, but that it should be that it should come to the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who, who hear, more will be given. For, whatever he ha- for whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man scattered seed on the ground, that he should sleep by night and rise by day, and the, sheep, the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the, the earth yields its crop by itself, first the blade and then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripened, immediately... He puts the sickle, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, Jesus, if you remember, the beginning of the chapter tells the parable of the good soil, or the sower and the seed. And describing all of mankind receiving the word of God in one of four ways. That the, the word of God is the seed, it's perfect, infallible, there's no problem with that at all. The problem is how we receive it. Um, And in the end, speaking of the good soil, who we all want to be, in verse 20 of chapter 4, it says, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. And it's simple, right? I mean, again, taking in the word of God, sometimes we very often overcomplicate it. It's, It's as easy as Jesus says there to, first of all, be in a place to hear it, to accept it, And that means even if you don't like what it says, (laughs) especially if you don't like what it says, that you're like, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong, so I'll I'll accept it. And then from that, you begin to bear fruit in your life. But now the question would naturally be, well, okay, what does it mean to bear fruit? How How do we bear fruit? We want to bear good fruit for the Lord. So what does it mean? And we'll see that these parables and really everything that's said in the rest of the chapter ties right back into that parable of the sower and the seed. And receiving the word of God. Um, I also think here is another example that would be easy to miss. But this is an example of Jesus, of Jesus using humor. That uh, the, the way he describes this, what's a lamp brought for? Is it, is it brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? The idea is so ridiculous that it's humorous. And Jesus uses humor lots. Uh, I, I think often we miss it because we just picture him very solemn or, you know, people are like very serious all the time. This is a funny picture. And, and I think we miss it because we're used to flicking on the light switch and we get light and we don't really think about it. And, you know, maybe we've got a candle that somebody lights in the house or whatever. When you are lighting a house through lamps, there is a lot of safety that goes into it, right? And, and so, first of all, the, there's the part of it is it's completely opposite for the design of a lamp right it's it's funny the idea of like oh hey let's light a lamp and then cover it why would you do that there's no reason but it's also to the point of everybody knows you can't put anything over a lamp because it'll catch on fire if you put it under a bed that bed's going to be on fire very quickly 
and so will a basket, soon the whole house. So again, it, it's a funny picture, um, but it's, it's important that uh, we understand that Jesus is, first of all, showing this is what happens when, it's, when something's misused, that it, it loses purpose and it's destructive. But when it's used properly, when a lamp is put on the lampstand the way it's designed to be, it's amazing. It brings light to the whole house. Its, it, its purpose is being fulfilled. And again, it's, it's so uh, simple that we miss it. The idea that, that simply just putting that lamp on a lampstand, fulfilling its purpose, gives light to the whole house, and all things are revealed, right? Never have any of us turned on the light switch or lit a candle or lamp and seen a struggle between light and darkness. Right? There's never, we never see the light getting stressed out about its job. Right? Oh, oh, oh gosh, what if I can't do it this time? What if you turn on the switch and I, I can't drive the darkness out? There's no struggle at all. Simply by its existence, darkness is dispelled. That's what it does. There's no problem, there's no struggle, there's no battle between light and darkness. Light wins every single time. Amen. And everything that was hidden in the darkness is revealed, right? Again, it's just, just how it works. We don't think about it because it's so obvious. Uh, and that's what Jesus is talking about, that in a well-lit room, everything's revealed. In verse 22, where he says, For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret but that but that, that should come to light. Um, Jesus, several times, refers to himself as being the light of the world. But then he also refers to those who follow him as the light of the world. And again, I think we understand this. It's, it's pretty easy that, that because he's the light of the world, that when we belong to him, his light is now within us, and we become lights of Jesus in the world. Again, this is all kind of the same picture. It's, it's showing this is how we bear fruit when we've heard and received the word of God, that we're taking in that truth, We've accepted it, and a part of bearing that fruit is that darkness is dispersed and things are revealed. But I think we need to understand what it means to have hidden things revealed. Because I have known people that have kind of taken that on themselves as their calling. That their job is to tell other people where they're failing. And when they hear anything, any that's been kept in secret, they blab it to the world because they're bringing light to the darkness. Uh, that's more like the lamp under the bed. That's destruction. That's using stuff improperly and doing harm. Primarily, actually, there's three things that Jesus is, is in this parable is, is speaking of. And I think, first of all, you know, have you noticed that as you walk with the Lord, the longer you walk with the Lord, the closer you get to him, the more you see how horrible you are? <laughs> Am I the only one? I remember when we got, when Candy and I first got saved, I was like, yeah, this Christianity thing, I got this, you know, a few things I should probably work on, but I'm pretty close. <laughs> you know? and it's like, the more you come into the light and the holiness of Jesus, it's like looking in a spiritual mirror. 
You, you just see yourself. And it isn't that the Lord does that in a way to bring shame or to degrade or to, you know, make us feel less than. It's just that we've got to be aware of it so that we're able to even come to him looking for forgiveness. It, it's part of the maturing process. It's part of growing in Jesus to realize, you know what? I wasn't even aware of those things. Or maybe I was aware of them and I justified them. Or I just purposely ignored that they existed. Whatever, the, whatever it is, that as we get closer to the Lord, those things which are hidden in me are revealed. The light has been lit. And, and though I would have been happy to live in darkness, I can't anymore. Right? The things hidden inside of me are, are being revealed. Now, the second reason for this is that uh, when we re receive the truth, and again, we become the lights of Jesus Christ, we simply dispel darkness by who we are. I don't think we need to give grand speeches. I don't think we need to try and corner people necessarily or make them feel bad. Just simply being in love with Jesus and, and not being ashamed to let other people know, I love Jesus, you know, and, and he's the most important thing in my whole life. I had a discussion with a, uh, a guy, and it, it started off as a good debate. This was a, a while ago, but it, and, and then all of a sudden, he just got mean. And I just said, you know what? Be careful, because this isn't just a theological discussion. You're talking about someone I love. Be careful, right? And again, it wasn't to, to make them feel bad. It was just to say, this is important to me. And I think living that type of life, we simply become the light in the darkness. We just, just again, we dispel darkness. We, it's not something we need to try and do. It should be part of who we are. Um, again, not that we need to corner people or preach at every single opportunity. You know, we just look for those opportunities to share the love of Jesus, and then we do it, right? And I think there's a simplicity to it, and it should flow naturally to some degree. Not that it isn't still a little uncomfortable, but uh, it should be more natural. The third, um, and actually this is where the Lord's going to go to as we, we get further on in the chapter, is that there is a time to enter into conflict. And I don't believe that that's the one-on-one -on -one kind of thing that, like I was just talking about. But there are times when evil attempts to make an attack on the church. When, when people or groups try and come in and they try and just have are very opposed to Jesus, to Christianity, and, and I believe that it is at that time, and those are very rare, but there is a time to stand on the word of God to be the light in the darkness and to face conflict and to go, no, we're not going to do that. That isn't what the word of God says. And we can do that lovingly, and we can do that in a kind way, and no matter what they're hitting us with, that we can still stand strong in Jesus. But I think there is that point. There, again, there's, there's this mentality in our society that it's like um, unity and acceptance at all cost. And I do not believe that's biblical. I believe that we should be showing love at all cost, but sometimes a tough love is necessary. And there is a time to go, no. That is not truth. That is not what the Word of God says. And those times... Being the light is very, very difficult 
<laughs> but still very necessary. Um, now, Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a, a lot more than, hey, everybody pay attention. And I think sometimes that's how we, we see it or hear it, that Jesus is like, oh, everyone should pay attention to what I just said. It's a lot more than that. In fact, really not that at all. It's Jesus just saying, if you have ears to hear the truth, hear it. If you have a heart to receive, again, those who hear the word and receive it and bear fruit. And so, again, he's saying, if, if you're willing to hear these things, hear it. But then he goes on to say that whoever does hear it, more will be given to them. But those who refuse to hear it, even what they have will be taken away. And this is a pretty stern warning because it's, it's saying those that want truth, the Lord has so much more truth for you. You know, I'm amazed if you read uh, some of the commentaries and some of the books, guys like the saints, I don't want to say saints of old, but man, just solid people like Spurgeon and some of these other guys that they just walk through their whole life with the Lord and serving the Lord and their depth just goes deeper and deeper and deeper the longer they walk with the Lord, right? More truth is being given to them over and over, and the longer they go. On the other side, we've all seen this as well, that somebody's going, you know what, I don't like that truth. They hear something from the Word of God, and, well, I don't like that. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's, that's the kind of God I want to serve. Even what they have will be taken away. And it doesn't mean that God is going, okay, I'm going to remove the truth I've planted. The idea is that they will abandon the truth that they've received. Even what's been given to them, they're going to go, nope, I don't want that either. And they start looking for a reason to not believe. They start looking for conflict with the word, and they start looking for issues and come up with small things that they make in these huge mountains going, why do we even trust the word of God? Why? Because they did not receive the word they heard. They didn't have an ear for the truth. And what they have is taken away from them. And then Jesus gives this other little parable, um, and there's a lot to it, but I think the overall is what's important, that the kingdom, of man, or the kingdom of God is like a man who scattered seed. And the idea is the farmer that plants this, this field, he knows that he, it's supposed to be planted, and he looks forward to the harvest, but he doesn't know how it works. <laughs> and in the same way, the kingdom of God, the word of God planted in us, we know what we want. We like the end result. We want to be mature Christians. We want to be more in love with Jesus. But honestly, it, it just takes time. And we don't know how it works all together. There's as many books and formulas there are out there of people like, this is how to be a solid Christian. Ah, they've got some good points, no doubt. But honestly, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that's maturing us. You know, again, early in my Christian walk, I had, I had a list that I kind of went to the Lord with, going, hey, here are the things you need to take care of in me. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 I have my own list. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what's on it. You're like, what? You know, and, and he's just faithfully, year after year, been working on it. And while I thought I wanted to work on everything all at once, he's like, no, just one. I got something I'm working in you. You don't need to know it or understand it. Just know that I'm at work, right? The verse 30 goes on. And then he said to them, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall I picture it? It is like a mustard seed, 
which when it is sown in the ground is smaller than all of the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows and becomes the greatest, the, excuse me, becomes greater than all of the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able, excuse me, gosh, um, let me try that again. Verse 33, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. In this case, the kingdom of God is speaking of the people of the kingdom. And again, you can't kind of look at the others, the other three options. It's very quickly uh, obvious that it can't be speaking of those. And, but it's also uh, the subject matter of what Jesus has been talking about, right? From the parable of the sower, he's talking about people who receive the, the word of God, the good soil being those of the kingdom of God. And the instruction he's been giving, even as far as like what to do with the light that's within us, is instruction to the people of the kingdom. And so the subject hasn't changed. He continues in this parable. And the picture of the mustard seed is used a couple different times by Jesus. And I think for that reason, I know for myself, sometimes I kind of confuse the meanings, right? That in uh, jo- excuse me, Matthew 17, he uses the picture of a mustard seed to speak of our faith. And so here it's easy to go, well, okay, he's speaking of mustard th- seed. That means something about faith. And, and we can kind of just take that, that, okay, faith should grow in us. It starts small. It gets bigger like a tree. And that sounds good. And just move on. <laughs> But again, the subject is not about faith. Jesus is talking about the church. And so when we we understand that, then suddenly it it takes us in a different direction. And to know that the kingdom of God is a reference to the church. Verse 31, he says, It's like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. At this point, when Jesus is teaching this, the church consists of him and 12 guys. That's the church. There's people that are showing up to listen. There's people who are taking in information. But for the most part, it's just Jesus and his little group. But it is about to explode. In fact, the only way it can be described is a, is a supernatural or at least an unnatural growth. And again, this parable, though it's very short, there's a lot to it here. And I think the people uh, would have fully understood it to a certain point because Jesus is using something very common, something that was well understood by everybody. Uh, Whether they were farmers or not, everybody probably had little gardens and herbs and stuff growing, and they knew that a mustard seed, sure enough, was super small, like like a grain of sand. And it grows, and it becomes larger than the other herbs in the garden. It gets... Full growth of a, of a mustard plant is about two foot, so it's larger than everything else. And I think that's the point where everybody would have been with him. And it grows and becomes greater than all the herbs. And they're like, yep, okay. But then Jesus goes beyond what they understand and says that it shoots out branches or large branches so that the birds of the air may nest in its shade. And that's the part where everyone would have went, what? No, it doesn't. A mustard plant gets that big. It's got little tiny spindly branches. No birds could land on it. They certainly couldn't make a nest in it. This is actually the point of this parable. 
that this is an unnatural or supernatural type of growth that's going to take place in the church. And along with that, um, you know, well, I mean, the idea that the church is going to grow so fast, and we go, well, okay, that's a good thing. Isn't that what we want? And, you know, Jesus doesn't give any warning of how to slow it down. He doesn't say, well, we don't want it to grow that fast. That's unnatural. So change this or do this. That's not what the instruction's about. That's not what the warning is here. The church is going to grow fast. It's going to continue to grow fast. The warning is, who is going to take advantage of that fast growth? And this is the part of the parable, again, to some degree they would have understood it, but it would have taken even the hearers in that day to dig a little bit deeper. In the parables that Jesus tells, especially anything that had to do with planting or agriculture at all or farming, uh, birds are a picture of evil, always. And if you've done any kind of gardening <laughs> or planting, and you go to all the work to prepare the soil, and you plant everything, you're like, yeah, this is going to be great. And you turn around, and there's this huge flock of birds, and they're all eating your seed. You're like, evil little buggers, right? And, and so they understood that the idea of birds when it came to agriculture was not a good thing. And, and so the picture here is, is that evil is going to find a place in the church. That's that darker truth <laughs> that we don't like to talk about. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we should ignore the problem or that we should or somehow just say it doesn't exist. The truth is there are still individuals, and there have been throughout all of church history, evil people with wrong motives who will use Christianity for their own agenda and for their own gain. And because the church grows so quickly, it's very easy for them to find a place for it. And again, it's not that they're just going to kind of come in and out and occasionally find a place. Jesus says they are going to build a place to live. This doesn't necessarily mean every single church has some evil within it. But the church as a whole, that has been true. You can look back on all of church history. It's heartbreaking how the word of God has been used to do horrible things. And it's right up through modern day to day. People using the word of God to take advantage of people. Whether it's preachers filling their pockets with money or whether it's politicians trying to raise votes. They can do horrible things, get caught red-handed in them, and then stand before a microphone talking about their faith. And unfortunately, too many people just buy right back into it. This is the warning. Again, Jesus isn't saying that we should ignore this problem. What, he's what he is saying is we should not be blindsided by it. It shouldn't catch us off guard. It should have never caught the church off guard. And there is lots of instruction in the Word of God how to deal with evil, especially when it finds its way into the church. Again, this is the part, that third use of, of light that I mentioned. There is a time for us to confront evil. And there is a time for us to stand against darkness. Even if it's not popular. Even if it's everybody else says that we're wrong for doing it. We have the word of God that we are to stand on. And to be light in the darkness. If we do not, 
We give it a place to dwell. Those are our only options. So when darkness comes in or when some leader in ministry is found out and it's just like, well, let's not say anything. Let's kind of keep this quiet. You are giving evil a place to live. And it won't be long before it takes over the church. I've seen it. And again, you can look at church history and see that it is absolutely true. We are to be the light. Verse 35 goes on. It says, on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitudes, they took Jesus, excuse me, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a very familiar story. I mean, probably in every children's Bible, there's this story given. Yet every time I read it, I was like, that's so cool. I just can't help myself. It's awesome. I love every aspect of it. Jesus and the boys get in this boat, and, um, and he tells them, let's go to the other side. As we'll talk about, that's a bigger deal than what we realize a lot of times as we read this story. Um, that they're there on the Sea of Galilee, and this huge storm arises. Now, it's not uncommon. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is, is famous for these windstorms because of where it is, you know, and all the different things that occur there. Uh, it's also good for us to remember that at least four of these guys are seasoned fishermen that have done all of their career right on this very Sea of Galilee, right? So when they start panicking, there's something to panic about. <laughs> like, you can understand if Matthew, the tax collector, is like, ah! It's like, Matthew, chill out. But when four fishermen are like, yeah, we're dead, then you know there's something seriously wrong. This great windstorm arose, and it says that it was beating against the boat, and the boat was already filling with water. Um, now, like I said, just the storm would be scary enough, but there's more to it. Uh, with a little research, we, we find that there was a lot more to it. That when Jesus said, let's, let's go to the other side, it's a big deal. Because they're crossing over to the area, uh, the country of the Gadareans. And historically and archaeologically, what they found is that that area was super evil. In fact, most people of Israel just avoided it altogether. It was known uh, to be filled with criminals and illegal activity, such as... Uh, illegal according to Jewish law, raising pigs, uh, but it was also a place filled with witchcraft. It was the last stronghold of the worship of Baal, that, that, that plague of false religion that had haunted Israel for so long. This was the last place that it still took place at. Uh, rather than still sacrificing humans, 
as uh, the old school way of worshiping Baal, they'd switch to pigs, right? So they'd become a little bit more modern. But, but people just stayed away from it because it was just known to be a dark, evil place. And Jesus is like, hey, let's go over there. And they're like, uh, okay, you know. And they get in the boat, and all of a sudden there's these dark clouds, and they're like, oh, this isn't going to be good. And then the storm arises, and they're like, oh, man, this is horrible. And even the way that Jesus rebukes the wind says that it could have had some sort of demonic activity, that there was something to it. It was more than just the wind because he didn't rebuke the waves. He didn't rebuke the sea. He just said, peace, be still. But there was a rebuke to something else, behind the wind, possibly. But in all of this, during the storm, during the chaos, everybody's freaking out. Jesus is asleep. And I just I don't love it. I love it that everyone else is just like, okay, he's going to wake up any minute now. You know, it's, these huge waves are bashing against the boat. You know, we're all screaming, yet he's just sound asleep. And, and uh and I think it shows us a couple things. First of all, it shows us Jesus, God Almighty, choosing to, with, to live within the restraints of humanity. He is exhausted after teaching for so long. And, and I certainly haven't ever done the marathon teachings like Jesus did. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, after teaching for half an hour, 45 minutes, I'm exhausted. There's something that's like on a different level. And so Jesus, after this time of teaching the crowd from the boat on the other side, is just trying to catch a little bit of sleep. You know, just, I just need 15 minutes, guys, you know, and he's out. And, and I think I like that because, again, it shows that he chose to put himself under the restraints of humanity. If it's just Jesus pretending to be tired, pretending to be exhausted, that says it's something very different. In fact, it says that he's lying about being tired. But that's not the case. He's, he's beat. He's tired. But it also shows that he is at absolute peace knowing that his heavenly Father is in control. Right? Again, we're heading to the land of the enemy. Not that he had anything to worry about or fear in that. But uh, he knew the boat wasn't going to sink. He knew that he was completely in the, in the safety of his Father. On the far extreme of that are the disciples themselves. And there's something heartbreaking about the question they ask. Do you not even care that we perish? Here's, they've seen all that Jesus has done. They've been right there for his teaching. He's explained to them one-on-one -on -one what those teachings meant. They've seen his compassion and his provision and his power. They've seen all the things that Jesus can do. And now in a windstorm, they go, we're not even sure if you care. And again, we can be pretty hard on the disciples. I think the reason it's heartbreaking is because I have said that same prayer. After all that I've seen Jesus do and accomplish in my life. One little thing, one little hiccup, I stub my toe. Do you even care? You know? <laughs> it's how we can be. Right? It's It's... We can flip on a dime, unfortunately. Again, I think that's part of that maturing and growing process. That instead of forgetting those things that we, he has done and how he's provided, we look to those first. 
Yeah, there's a storm. Yeah, there's a difficulty. Yeah, there's things I did not expect to happen. But I can look back on all the other times in my life that worse storms hit. More difficult things have happened. And he has got me through each and every one. And that we can rest in the safety of our Heavenly Father. Now Jesus links their fear and their lack of faith. Again, I think it's important. It's really easy to just say, well, fear and faith can't coexist. And I don't believe that's true. I think we will always have a certain measure of fear. But I don't believe we can be controlled by fear and controlled by faith. It's going to be one or the other. And if my fear gets enough of a hold on me, it will rule me. It will cause me to run or fight or flee or whatever I think I need to do. But it will not cause me to act in faith. And so how, how is it that we grow in faith? How is it that we become people of faith in trials, in difficulties, in good times, in bad times? Well, Paul put it like this in Romans 10. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. See, it comes right back around to hear the word of God and receive it and bear fruit. This is how faith grows. Faith doesn't grow by miracles. I think a lot of times we think that, oh man, if I just saw the Red Sea split, if I just saw some healing that was miraculous, then I would never doubt again. Oh yeah, you would. We all would. Just like when the the Israelites were on the other side of the Red Sea and they're like, wow, that was fantastic. And almost immediately after went, he brought us out here to die. Right? We're no different. We would do the same things. That's not how faith grows. Faith grows by taking in the word of God. Finding it to be true and act, as we act on it. Right? And again, then we're able to look back and go, oh yeah, there was that other time. I wasn't sure, but I took God at his word and he was faithful. You know, I know Candy and I have had many of those times. One of them that always sticks out is uh, we were just kind of learning about tithing. And we're like, whoa, I don't know. Are, are we still supposed to do that? It's an Old Testament thing. And new, no, we found out it's a New Testament thing. So tithing, that sounds good. But man, there was just never any money left over at the end of the paycheck, right? You pay the bills, you buy groceries, and you're like, done. Sorry. Sorry, God. You don't get 10%. <laughs> you're going to have to like somehow add 10% if you want that back or whatever. But then it, finally we got to the point where we're like, he said, test me in this. Test me in this. And we're like, let's test him. And, and that month, the amount of money we had to tithe was the exact amount we needed to buy groceries. And we're like, here's the test. And so we, we tithed it with no groceries. <laughs> we're like, all right, this is going to be fun. And, and trying to be you know, excited about this and and then some friends showed up, and they're like, this is going to sound weird, and we don't want you to take this the wrong way. We were just grocery shopping, and felt like the Lord went, hey, you need to buy groceries for Jack and Candy. And so we just walked through the aisles, going, do they need this? No. Do they need that? Okay, yes, yes. <laughs> and so they come in with like four to six bags of groceries, and they're like, we know this is weird, and they kept apologizing. Candy are just weeping, you know. But what we learned is, Stand on the word of God, and you see his faithfulness. And so the next trial comes, and you're like, I'm going to stand on the word of God again. Faith grows. 
And fear has much less room to try and control us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, that you never let us down. Though often you do things we do not expect, it is always for our good in the long run, and we trust you. Cause us to be people that are growing in our faith, that are usable to you, that are lights in the darkness to reveal those things hidden within us, but also to bring light to those lost in the dark. And uh, we just pray that you have your way in us individually and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.